Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us, thank you so much for being with us. It's an honor to have you, if you will. Be opening your Bibles to Romans, the 13th chapter. In Romans, the 13th chapter, in just a minute, we will begin our studies uh, for tonight in Romans, the 13th chapter. It is exciting to think about homecoming. I want to remind you again, if you have names and addresses of past members that we could mail invitations to, please be sure and turn those in to us. Either submit them to the office, or if you know it, you can put it on the back on the remarks of your card there uh, that will be handed in at the end of services. Also, if you have or know of individuals that we could encourage, maybe they've become discouraged spiritually, and we could give them an encouragement to come Uh, Back to their first love. Please let us know who those individuals are. We would love to have the opportunity to do that also. It is exciting to think about being able to burn the note on Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. On homecoming. Uh, It would be Thanksgiving to be able to do that. Uh, To burn the note at homecoming. uh, As it pertains to this facility. And the mortgage that is against this facility. And uh, what we want to do is everyone do our part. No one's being asked to do more than what they can do, but let's do what we can do. Uh, God has prospered us, and let's give back to Him based on how He has prospered us. And let's look forward to an exciting time next month as we count the many ways God has blessed us by getting together and, and, and homecoming. We'll reminisce some in the past. We'll look to the present, but we'll also prayerfully uh, look to the future. And let's make sure that we do our part to make that the great success that no doubt that it can be. I look forward to studying next month, uh, the study together in our Bible classes and then in the uh, sermon time of the church. What a blessing that that is going to be. We appreciate Andrew so much, the time and the planning that he puts in uh, to our educational program. And it is obvious if you're a part of that, the dividends that that is paying in all of our lives. And we love and appreciate him for that. And I look so forward to that study together. Uh, Be sure as you... Uh, pick up your book, be sure and share that with the whole family, and let's make sure that we all invest our heart and our energy into a study together over the next quarter of that wonderful, wonderful topic of the Lord's Church. Clara Barton did something that no woman had ever done in her time. She insisted that someone ought to go out and help soldiers before the battle was actually over. You see, their practice in the Civil War was to go into battle and and no one went after those that were injured until the battle was completely over. And then finally, when the battle was over, if anyone remained alive, they would go to retrieve those that were injured and carry them in an old rough wagon, not binding up their injuries at all until they traveled oftentimes miles and miles on a rough ride in a wagon. And very few, as you can imagine, could live through that. She found a van, supplied it with medical equipment and even medicine. She went before the general and she made her case. And he said, no, woman, women do not belong on the battlefield. And besides, you're a petite little lady. You would never survive. She again told him her plan and said, I want to save the lives of these men, at least the lives that can be saved. It won't cost you anything. I'll drive the wagon. I'll load them up. It won't cost you any manpower. The general refused. A day later, she went back in again. She made the same plea. He refused. She continued to go back, making the same plea over and over until finally he was tired of saying no. And he says, you can do it. 
She oftentimes would work as long as five days and nights without hardly any rest. She tirelessly rode and drove her, her team of horses to the battlefield. Tirelessly brought back the wounded, binding up their wounds on the battlefield, offering them medicine and bringing them back to the hospitals. She became known as the angel of the battlefield. Her name became a common byword among the soldiers. Everyone spoke of her with love and dignity and respect. As a matter of fact, she gained so much respect that before long, the general was coming back and saying, could we offer you some manpower? Could we offer you some of our wagons? You're doing a tremendous thing for our soldiers and we would like to be a part of it. After the war was over, she heard of something that she'd never heard of until that time. It was a movement in Switzerland that was very similar. This movement in Switzerland was known as the Red Cross. She decided that it would be good for America to be a part of such a movement like that that was simply looking out for the good of other people. But she wanted to do something that the Red Cross had never done. You see, the Red Cross had only served those that were in war. She made a proposition to Congress that the U.S. should be a part of the Red Cross with an American amendment. We also should reach out to anyone that's hurting, those that have suffered floods and natural disasters and fires and tornadoes and etc., And you see, it was her works that really designed the Red Cross to what you and I know today that serves the world. Friends, what is it that you and I do with our lives that serves other people? What is it that we do that if other people follow our example, tremendous and great things would happen? Can't help, of course, think of Jesus. When Jesus was on this earth, His life was about serving others. Ultimately, His life was about serving others even through death. But you know, it's Jesus that began an institution that we call the church. And just as the Red Cross has lived on, there's something so much more important than the Red Cross. And it is the Lord's church. And really, a great part of the Lord's church is that the Lord's church is constantly reaching out and serving others. A part of the the way that we would define righteousness would be the way we interact with other people. And we've looked at a few passages already today. Passages that dealt with our love one to another. Tonight, I want us to look at some other passages where within these passages we can see some more one another statements. But in these, we're going to notice that each time he tells us there's something we ought to do one to another and then something that we ought not to do. Let's begin in Romans the 13th chapter. If you will, read with me in verse 7. He's laid out the guidelines in the first six verses of Romans the 13th chapter about the way we should support and respect our government and how government is actually laid out by God to serve as God's ministers. Three times they're told and described as God's ministers. And then we read in verse 7, Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe no one anything except to love one another. There it is. One another, love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. 
You see, what is described here is the great respect that we ought to have for others. When we say, is debt good? Most of the time we'd say, well, it's best if we're not in debt. But yet Paul writes here of a debt that says, absolutely, you're to be in debt in this way and you're to feel the debt to be compelled to act upon it. What is the debt that we owe? We owe the debt of love. We owe that. The stranger that you'll meet tomorrow, that you've never met before, you owe love and respect to them. The person that you're sharing the pew with right now, you owe love and respect to them. Tomorrow, when you go into the workplace, superiors over you, you owe respect to them simply because they're superiors. In the workplace and in school, we owe respect to others. Now, I know that we're living in a time that many would say, that's old-fashioned. Friends, I suggest to you, it's not old-fashioned, it's biblical. It's what God would have us to be. When God writes about government here through Paul, God tells us, He says, I want you to even respect when it comes to taxes. This is referring probably to land and real estate. He says, if for no other reason, I want you to pay those taxes because it's the right thing to do. You owe it out of love for even the government. When he talks of customs, that's what today we would think of sales tax. It's on merchandise. He says, I want you to do it because it's what we owe. When he speaks here of honor and also of fear, it says, fear to whom fear and honor to whom honor. The fear relates especially to those that have authority. You know, I've been around little children. Different setting than here in Mount Juliet. But I've been around little children that they see a police car go down the road and they begin to speak negative, very hateful remarks toward the police officer in that car. Now, number one, that's wrong. God wants us to respect those that have authority over us. But number two, I need to learn this lesson, parents. Usually, whatever measure of respect we have for others, our children will almost always follow in those same footsteps. That little three-year-old that's talking down about a police officer didn't learn that on their own. They almost always pick that up from their family. What are we teaching our children by the way we live and by the way we talk? Let's make sure that we've taught them the importance of respecting one another by the way that we love. That's something we owe to others, not because they're perfect. You see, if I only respected those that were perfect, I'd have no respect for anyone. We respect because God commands it. But now there's also something that is of a negative here. Look with me, if you will, to the next two verses. Look in verse 9 and 10, still in Romans 13. For the commandments, and now listen to this list of negative things. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. If there's any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying. Namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Now you see, that's the theme for, the, for this day. To love our neighbor as ourself. And so here as he speaks about this love, notice it's love that respects and it's love that does not harm another. 
It'd be easy to look at this list in verse 9 and say, oh, that's just a list of sin. No, it's much more specific than that. If you look at it, it's a list of sin that when we commit it, we harm the lives of others. In other words, someone does not commit adultery because they love. You see, adultery always harms. It hurts a lot of people. Someone doesn't murder because they love. Naturally, murder takes life. It doesn't benefit life. And then he gives a list of like bearing false witness and covetousness, etc. All of those are things that individuals do to harm another person. And so what's the answer? The answer there in 10 is very simple. Love does no harm. And so when we think about what's our responsibility to one another, it's to respect one another. And then he offsets that by saying, don't harm one another. Let's make sure that we love and appreciate each other and that we never are the cause of pain in another person's life. Can you pillow your head tonight and know that what you've said and done, that you've not brought hardship into someone else's life? Wouldn't it be a blessing if that was a goal in our life every day? That we never brought harm into another person's life. Look with me if you will to Galatians the 5th chapter. As we look in Galatians the 5th chapter, we see another of the one another statements. This time in Galatians 5 and 13. In Galatians 5 and 13, he says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. How important it is for us to serve each other, but how difficult it is to do that consistently because we have to continually live a life of humility. You know what the Lord wants us to be is not just one that acts like a servant. The Lord wants us to genuinely be a servant. If you want to turn over quickly, and hold your finger here in Galatians 5, we'll come right back. But look over in John the 13th chapter. You probably know this story very well as you're turning there. John the 13th chapter. Think about Jesus sitting in the the leading seat of the Passover. He's just had the apostles, his closest around the table. He's just led them, but yet he gets up from this table and he takes off his wardrobe that he has on and he wraps around him the wardrobe of a servant. And he takes a basin of water and he begins to go around washing feet. And it's this act of service that once he renders this to them, notice what he says in verse 14 and following. He says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. There's our phrase again. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. In those four verses, he taught us, I want you to be willing to serve one another. And he gives the example of washing feet. And then he even says, I gave you this example so that it would be an example to you to know. That we're to serve one another. And then he places all of this with the backdrop of humility. If the master comes and and he serves those that are less, think of that example of humility. None of us can say, I shouldn't serve another person. Because the greatest of all, Jesus Christ has come and he's rendered his life as a servant to us. 
Now, doesn't this strike home with all of us as we read verse 17? It's one thing to know these things, but blessed are you when you do them. Friends, the great blessings of living the spiritual life comes from just that. Not just knowing it, but living the spiritual life. So when we think about the one another, what is one of the things the Lord wants us to do? The Lord wants us to serve one another. Now, what's this in opposition to? If you will, let's go back now to Galatians 5 and notice what he says in 14 and 15. He closed verse 13, which is the passage we're just in, Galatians 5 and 13. Remember, he closed it by saying, but through love serve one another. Now notice 14 and 15. For all the law is fulfilled in one word. Now that one word would be love, but then he goes on and says a phrase, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here we are, back to the second greatest command again. Now notice verse 15. Now here's what's said in opposition to that. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. You remember when we studied Galatians together, we studied this text in depth. And the idea here is is cannibalism. He says spiritually you can bite and devour. And and the words here are the same words as if we think of, of a wolf or a dog eating the flesh of another. And then he even says you can be consumed by one another. Well, we understand that I guess physically. But what is he trying to say to us spiritually by using such strong and gross wording? No doubt he's trying to get our attention. No doubt he's trying to show us how terrible it is. Well, what is it that's so terrible? He says, I'm trying to get you to serve one another in love. But yet what's happening over here is you're just gnashing at each other and you're trying to destroy each other's lives. Have you ever noticed that whenever you have that feeling to seek revenge... Now, some of you probably never experienced this before. But let's just say someone says something to you and it really hurts your feelings and it kind of puts you in your place or even if you didn't deserve it. And immediately you walk away saying, well, I should have said this. Next time I'm going to say that. And what happens? Over the next few hours or the next few days, if we don't get control of those thoughts, that person's actions have consumed our mind. And every time we're driving... We're consumed with how we want to bite and devour that person. Anytime we're just daydreaming, we're being consumed how we want to bite and devour that person with our words or maybe with our actions or whatever it may be. Friends, I want to tell you something only because it's from the Scriptures, not because I think it's easy. But at the times you and I are being consumed by such thoughts, if I understand the Scriptures properly, we need to pray and get those thoughts out of our mind. And then we need to think, what is it that we can do for that person to serve them? Now, now wait a minute, wait a minute. It's hard enough just to get the thoughts out of the mind because after all, they deserve for somebody to put them in their place. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. It's not our place to put anybody in their place. So what are we to do as Christians? It's our place to say, okay, I almost practice spiritual cannibalism. Lord, forgive me of that. 
Strengthen me. I don't want to do that. Now let me look for ways that I can go about to show that person that I love them by serving them. Friends, how many enemies could we make our friends if we did such? What kind of example could we be for our friends and for our family members if we practiced that kind of Christianity? The kind of Christianity that truly loves their neighbor as their self. Not by a definition of love that we have dreamt up, but a definition of love that comes from God who is love. Let's look at a final one tonight. Look with me, if you will, to Romans, the 15th chapter. In Romans, the 15th chapter, these aren't just back-to-back like some of the other ones, but they'll be within a two-chapter range, speaking pretty much of the same thing. In Romans 15 and 7, notice the one another statement here. In Romans 15 and 7, as he says, Therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now, you remember recently, we talked about the concept here of receiving. It's the idea of taking the weaker brother. If you want to drop back, look at the 14th chapter in verse 1. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. You see, the teaching here is that we take one that is weak. Or here, it was also relationships between the Jew and the Gentile in the 15th chapter. And so he's taking the ones that it might be difficult for you and I by nature to receive. And he's saying, I want you to do something by a spiritual nature that's greater than your physical nature. I want you to go ahead and I want you to bring them in the midst of you. Because what they need is they need to be surrounded by spiritual strength. Keep in mind, remember a few weeks ago when we were studying this, we said the Lord never designed for there to be an A-team church and a B-team church. And all of the strong members kind of gathered over to the side and they stiff-armed the weaker members. That's what he's speaking against here. He's saying, yes, some are going to be younger in the faith spiritually. Some are going to be weaker spiritually. They just haven't had time or they've not taken the opportunity to mature. But we're not going to create two churches over this. We need the stronger ones to go and, and to engulf them and to surround them so that they'll have the opportunity to grow. But you know what was tempting to do? Look, if you will, back to the 14th chapter and notice, instead of receiving what some want to do is judge, look at verse 13. We're in the 14th chapter in verse 13. And remember, this was the passage that verse 1 started out by saying, receive the weaker. But some had been judging the weaker. And so he says in 13, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this. Not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Back up to verse 10 and see how this is also said. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now there are times that we need to make judgments. We have to decide what's right and wrong. And so it's not that it's always wrong to determine in someone else's life if something is, is right or wrong. That's not the case. The judging that he's speaking against here is when we try to make final condemnation on someone else. In this particular passage, it might have been a weaker brother that honestly believed, I can't eat pork. The stronger brother has found his liberty in Jesus Christ and he's saying, we no longer live under the old law. It's fine for us to to eat pork. You're the weaker brother that simply needs to grow up. And Paul writes and says, no, you need to be the stronger brother that's patient with the weaker brother. 
Stop judging them. Stop condemning them. Instead, start surrounding them. And then later in this same chapter, he, he would even say that he would simply not even eat meat. If that's what it meant to strengthen that younger brother. What's the point? When we truly love one another, we're willing to receive them instead of being so critical towards them. Are you like me in the sense that sometimes you need reminders of just the most basic things? I had a good mama. I still have a good mama. And she did such a good job of reminding me of those things, and she had to do it often. I remember so often she would say, now, let's not be critical. You know, we need those reminders sometimes. It's easy to get in habits of being critical. Critical about long lines. Critical about families. Critical about churches or organizations or nations. Critical about individuals. And the next thing you know, we're walking through life just looking for something we can criticize. And it's almost like Paul, and I know this is oversimplifying this, these two chapters, but it's almost as if Paul's saying right here, instead of walking around looking for ways you can criticize that weak brother, let's love them. Let's receive them. Let's see what we can do to help them grow to be stronger. Friends, a great bit of our righteousness is defined by the way we deal with one another. It's impossible for you and I to have a great relationship with God and a pitiful relationship with mankind. I can't be a sorry family member and a faithful Christian. I can't be a pitiful friend and a faithful Christian. Love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. On and on, the Lord would say, urging us to think about how we treat each other. We're about to sing a song of encouragement. I want to encourage you, if there's nothing of a public nature that you need to respond to this evening, will you at least make a commitment to yourself to evaluate where you are and say, what is it that I can do in my relationship to others that I will be more of what God would have me to be in my love and respect and service and reception of others? If you've never been baptized into Christ, you're missing a rich blessing. The greatest of all blessings, being adopted into God's family, having the hope of eternal life. Friends, if you don't have that, please don't leave here tonight without that. If you're a believer that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and you're willing to repent of sins and confess before men, won't you be baptized tonight? Maybe you've been baptized into Christ and something has separated you from God. Won't you come back to Him tonight? Repent of that sins, confess. Let's pray forgiveness. But as we close this day, the second greatest command. The statement that 
so many of us have made is how much we love being a part of a loving family. Just remember, we are the ones that define that by the way we act toward each other every day. What a responsibility. Let's deal wisely with it. If we can help you in any way, 